passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. If you're new, I'm Kurt. I'm one of the pastors. And um, we here at Crosswinds are all about trying to reach people with Jesus Christ. And we do that in a variety of ways both inside of the church as well as outside of the church. And I'd like to just briefly highlight one of the ways that we try to reach people inside of the church by just pointing out sort of a a neat team. And that's the folks who actually work at the the Gathering Grounds coffee bar in the foyer. If you realize that, they come early, they make coffee. And by the way, when you lose an hour of sleep, the guy who makes coffee, very important person, right? Yeah, that's it. Get an amen for that one. But there's other people, people who either bake cookies and bring them, other people who um, make coffee cake and bring it. Some people buy cookies. But, you know, the reason that they do that is if you're new here, they want you to feel welcomed here. That's really the point. It's not about feeding people food. It's about making people feel welcomed to help us reach people with Jesus Christ. So just a special thanks to those who work in the Gathering Grounds Coffee Bar as they're trying to help us uh, be more welcoming to those people who need to hear the good news about Jesus Christ. As a church, we are studying our way through 2 Samuel. We just began 2 Samuel two weeks ago. We only covered the first chapter then. Uh, Last week, Pastor Chris filled the pulpit for me while I was out of town. It was a great thing. Very thankful to have him. And today we are back in 2 Samuel. And let me just take a brief moment to catch you up with the story of what's going on. If you didn't hear the background on this, 2 Samuel is just really a continuation of 1 Samuel. The division between the books is purely artificial because at first they were actually just one book uh, put together. And 1 Samuel has been the story about God's first king. It was King Saul. King Saul started out well, but then quickly began doing his own thing and going his own way. And God rejected him as king. And then in the middle of the book of 1 Samuel, God anointed a new king, a king after God's own heart. That was a man of, named David. Then we had this really awkward time for the rest of 1 Samuel where Saul was rejected by God, but actually still in charge. David was anointed by God to be king, but he wasn't in charge. In fact, he spent a whole bunch of time running for his life because King Saul hated him and wanted him dead. Then it came to the end of 1 Samuel. King Saul died in a battle with the Philistines. But David wasn't part of that at all. He was actually 100 miles to the south in the city of Ziklag, Uh, defending his people and his family against a group of people called the Amalekites. Then, when we began 2 Samuel, two weeks ago, you'll remember what happened. It was at that time an Amalekite came from the battle with Saul and told David the news that Saul and his son Jonathan and actually two others of his sons were dead. Now, as we pick up in the second chapter of 2 Samuel, The question is, what will David do now that he knows King Saul is dead and it's time for him to assume the the kingship back in Israel? So as we turn the page, 
at least metaphorically, that's what we, we discover. I also need to tell you a little bit how this chapter is set up. This chapter is set up uh, intentionally by the biblical author in the form of contrasts. It's a contrast between two men. David, as we're going to learn about him as a humble and godly leader and the right choices he's making in leadership. And we'll be introduced to another man that we've seen a few times earlier in 1 Samuel, a man named Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army. Abner, as we're going to see, is the exact opposite of David. Abner is an egotistical, prideful leader who's filled with selfish ambition. And when we're done with this chapter, uh, the one question that will be lingering over each of our heads is simply this. What kind of leader am I? It's a question we need to ask ourselves every day. I, am I a humble, trusting, and godly leader like David is in this chapter? Or am I more like an egotistical and prideful man or woman like Abner? That is one of the questions we'll walk away from this, cha from this chapter um, asking ourselves. So let's begin by uh, starting here at the very beginning of the chapter where we see that David was a humble leader. It begins with this. After this, David inquired of the Lord, well, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, well, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. Now, in the last chapter, we know that when um, Saul died, that took place up in Gibeah. And as I mentioned a moment ago, David was far away from that. He was 100 miles to the south in Ziklag. Ziklag was actually so far south, you remember, it was not in the territory of Israel. David was actually in the land of the Philistines when that happened. Now, David knows Saul is dead. He knows that he is anointed by God as king, and this is the time he's supposed to go back. But we don't see David instantly pouncing on this opportunity, trying to fill the leadership vacuum left behind by Saul. No, that's not what happens. When David sees this leadership vacuum, the first thing he does is actually turn to God in prayer and ask God, God, what should I do? Do you want me to go back now or not? And God responds to him, yes, I do want you to return to Judah. And then David says, well, where do you want me to go into to Judah? Should I go to Hebron? And God says, yes, that's exactly where I want you to go. Now, there's instruction here. David, as a leader, is a different kind of leader. Rather than following his own selfish ambitions and the plans he has in his own head, he very quickly, when he sees these opportunities, turns to God and he checks with God as to what God wants him to do before he does things. That is actually the opposite of Saul. Remember when Saul was anointed king, he was told that to be a successful king, he must listen to and obey the word of the Lord. But did he do that? Absolutely not. Saul was about following his own will and his own directions. And when God did give him directions, like to destroy the Amalekites, did he listen to God's word? Thank you, Tom. No, he didn't. So Saul was a person who was off doing his own thing. Here we see David is in contrast to that. 
He's trying to make sure he's listening and obeying the word of God. Now, you may ask, well, how did God speak to him? We don't know exactly at this point. We do know that the, the focus is not on exactly how God spoke to him, but that David actually sought God's wisdom and sought God's words. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, that God's spoken many times and he spoke in various different ways. As you look at David over the panoramic view of his life, we know that God sometimes spoke to David through the prophets. God sometimes spoke to David um, directly. We know most recently in 1 Samuel that God has been speaking to David through the Urim and the Thummim. Do you remember those stones? Remember the story of how this went on? Back in 1 Samuel, you may remember this, that there's a man named Doeg the Edomite who convinced Saul to allow him to kill all of the priests in Israel. And Doeg killed all of them except one escaped by the name of Abiathar. Abiathar, the young man, escaped and went to David and he brought with him a high priest garment. And in the chest piece of the garment were two stones called an Urim and a Thummim. And we do not know exactly all the details of how this worked, but we do know it was a little bit like casting of dice. There was typically what we think is a white side and a black side to each of those two stones, and you'd ask God a question, you'd cast the dice, and if it was two white sides up, God said yes. If it was two black sides down, God said no. So it seems like this is what David was doing possibly through Abiathar and through the Urim and Thummim, he is uh, seeking and finding God's will for the next steps in his life. Now this gives us a lesson. What are we like? When we see an opportunity for more power, we see an opportunity for more money, we see something that's right before us, do we pounce on it instantly like a cat on a mouse? That's what Saul would do. Or are you more like David? He would say, well, let me stop and think about that. Let me stop and pray about that. And ask God if this is an opportunity he wants me to pursue, an opportunity he wants me to follow. That's obviously what a godly leader would do. Now, you may ask, well, how do we figure out what God's will is? We don't cast the Urim and Thummim today. We don't roll the divine dice to define find God's will. Here's how we find God's will for our life today. Two things. One is we look in the Bible, and the other thing we do is we pray. Here's the first point. We look in the Bible for priorities and precedents that apply to the choices in our life. God will not give you specific instructions on the name of the person you are to marry. He will not give you specific instructions on the title of the job you are to take or the name of the city where you are to live. But God does tell us what priorities honor him, what kind of attitudes honor him, and as followers of Jesus Christ, the things we should be pursuing and seeking in our life. Let's take the example of looking for a spouse. God is not probably going to tell you with a voice and say, marry this person and give you that person's name. That's not usually the way he speaks. But he does tell you that you are to marry somebody in the Lord. You're not to be unequally yoked. You're to marry another Christian. 
Proverbs 31 tells you the kind of qualities a man is to look for in a, a, a godly woman, in a godly wife. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us what kind of uh, the way a husband and wife relationship is to work. And if you are, have somebody who doesn't believe in that and doesn't agree with that, that's obviously not a good choice. It's not a wise choice. It's not the kind of choice that God wants you to make in a marriage partner. So God reveals his will to us clearly by giving his, his word to us and his word giving us parameters for making what are godly and good decisions. Then the next thing we do is this. We pray for wisdom to apply God's word to our life and God's providence to open and close doors of opportunity in our life. So after you've looked at God's word, you say, God, help me to make sure I'm seeing your word correctly and I'm applying your word correctly in the choice that is in front of me right now. And if I'm missing something, bring me across that passage I need to read, which will help me understand your will in the choice I have to make. And then the next thing you simply do is, God, if everything looks good, I'm asking you either open or, keep, or close this door of opportunity. And if you close the door of opportunity, I assume that is you turning me away from something you do not want me to do. That's how it works. So it's the word of God and praying and asking God to open and close doors of opportunity is the way God guides us in our life. And like David, we should not just pounce at every opportunity that comes our direction, but pray to God about those things and say, God, what do you want me to do? Now let's go back to the story. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, uh, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. Incidentally, this was not a temporary visit. This was a complete moving package. This was the whole U-Haul trucks, everything. They moved everything. Incidentally, uh, at this point, there were thousands of men following David along with their family. So this was a major move here. Incidentally, David's two wives are mentioned. If you've been with us through 1 Samuel, you know he picked up these two wives while on the run from Saul. And their hometowns are Jezreel and Carmel, which incidentally is right around the city of Hebron. So this is an opportunity for his wives to actually sort of go home, which I think everybody probably likes to go back to their hometowns or their home region, right? So that's what we have going on here. What I should mention, though, by the way, these are actually David's second and third wives. He actually, his first wife was a woman named Michael, who was Saul's own daughter. You may remember from 1 Samuel that when David was out of town, Saul took her away and gave her to another man as a way of hurting David. And by the way, she'll come back into the picture next week. We'll see more about her. But I think this brings up a topic I want to spend a few moments on. That's polygamy in the Old Testament. Because here we see David is on his second and third wife. 
and we see this polygamy in the Old Testament, it doesn't seem like God explicitly goes out of his way to condemn polygamy in the Old Testament. Why is that? The Bible is very clear that God's plan is one man and one woman in marriage for life. That's the way he set it up in Genesis. Adam and Eve, not Eve 1, 2, 3, and 4. That's reaffirmed in the New Testament very clearly. One man, one woman for life. But then we see these times in the Old Testament where men have more than one wife. What is going on here? Polygamy, you need to know, was very common in Old Testament cultures. That doesn't make it right. While the Bible does not go out of its way to directly criticize polygamy, it does indirectly criticize polygamy, and it warns us of the dangers that come with it. If you look at the Old Testament, every time you see polygamy, it ends in complete disaster. You must understand that. Look at David, for instance. We're here in 2 Samuel. Let me just elevate out of the particular chapter in. Just look at the book as a whole. David is doing incredibly well. He's doing amazingly well as a king. God is behind him. You get to the middle of this book, his inability to restrain himself from extra women, particularly with Bathsheba, will be his downfall. More women than the one he's supposed to limit himself to, his wives. Now, you're going to have the exact same thing in David's son, Solomon, the wisest man to ever live. God appears to him twice, but yet he ends poorly. And what does the scripture say? Because his many foreign wives drew his heart away from God. Disaster all over again. Go back into the patriarchs. Remember when we studied Genesis? We have Isaac, and you have, he's married to two sisters, Rachel and Leah, was that a happy home? Absolutely not. It was constantly a fighting and bickering home because he has more than one wife who aren't real happy about having a competitor in the household. So my point to you is this, that even though the Old Testament may not clearly and explicitly condemn polygamy, every example it gives us of polygamy ends in disaster. Now, let's apply this. Unless you're a Mormon, you probably are not wrestling with polygamy today. Most people are one man, one woman for life. We understand that as the, the norm. But what we have today is not literal polygamy that is rampant, but virtual polygamy that is rampant. rampant. Virtual polygamy through the internet. It's called pornography. It's men filling their minds with multiple women, and that, my friends, will always, always end in disaster. Virtual polygamy in today's world ends in disaster, just like literal polygamy in the ancient world ended in disaster. There is no way out on that. Now, what I do want to say is if you're listening to me this morning and you're struggling with virtual polygamy, you're struggling with pornography, the only way out is to begin by repenting of that sin, confessing that sin, calling it a sin, 
and admitting it to God and asking for the blood of Jesus to cover that sin and to break the chains that it holds in your heart. That's the first thing. The second thing is if you're not married, you need to find a godly brother in Christ who you can confess your sin to and who can hold you accountable and keep you accountable. Because iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. If you are married, you're not just confessing that sin to Jesus in your prayers, but you need to confess that sin to your spouse because you have sinned against your spouse by not being faithful to your spouse and being involved in virtual polygamy. Now, I know some of you are going to say, well, are you kidding? I couldn't confess that to my wife. She would kill me. There's one who would kill you right there. Okay, but the point is, you know, she may kill you as you're seeking healing and repentance. But that's a good pain because it's repentance and healing pain. But if you hide it from your spouse and it's later discovered, it's far, far worse. So I would encourage you, if that you're struggling with that, confess that to the Lord and those you have sinned against and seek God's grace. Let's go back into our text. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And go ahead and put that map up if you could. Well, and I wanted to put that map because I wanted to show you the size of Judah. Judah is a very large tribe. It's only one of the 12 tribes, but it is one of the biggest. It's on the south. It's the bottom one in green. Incidentally, it says they made David king or they anointed David king. David was actually anointed king back in 1 Samuel chapter 16 by Samuel when God anointed him king. This is Judah, uh, the, the, this one tribe officially rightfully recognizing David as the rightful next king. We'll actually have a third anointing of David later on in 2 Samuel when all of the tribes officially recognize him as king. But what I want us to see at this moment is the two leadership qualities of David that set him apart as different. Number one, he is not trying to follow his own will. He is stopping, praying, and wanting to follow God's will for what he wants done in life. Number two, and this is very important, David did not force himself as king over Judah. Did you notice that? The people of Judah chose him as king willingly, not forcing himself over other people, but serving other people and being king when they chose him. Now we're going to see the first thing David does as king, which is this. David extended peace to his enemies. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. Now, David is told about the men of Jabesh-Gilead burying Saul. You may know that story from the end of 1 Samuel. You remember what happened. Um, Saul and three of his sons were killed in the battle with the Philistines. The next day, the Philistines found them. They beheaded them. They took their bodies and hung them on the outside of the Philistine fortress named Beth-Shan. It was a way of desecrating the bodies, exposing him to the elements, shaming Saul and his sons. But the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard about that. And they couldn't tolerate the idea that this is what they were doing to King Saul, even though he was dead. They sent men who traveled through the night 
deep into Philistine territory, took down the bodies, brought them back home, and gave them a decent burial. And the reason they had done that was because they remembered the good Saul had done, and they were grateful for the good Saul had done. Remember the story from 1 Samuel? When Saul first became king, one of the first things he did when he was actually heading in the right direction was a man named Mahash the Ammonite was conquering cities east of the Jordan. And when he'd conquer cities, remember he gouged the right eye out of every person in the city he conquered. And there was one city left east of the Jordan he had not conquered. It was the city of Jabesh-Gilead. And Saul rallied all the Israelites and he saved the people of Jabesh-Gilead against Nahash the Ammonite. And they had not forgotten that. Which is why they were still so grateful to Saul, willing to risk their lives to save the body of Saul and his sons. And the reason I tell you this little backstory is to understand the people of Jabesh-Gilead were the most pro-Saul people in the entire nation of Israel. They would have been politically David's arch enemies, the ones who were saddest that Saul no longer reigned. But what do we see David doing? He is reaching out and building relationship with his enemies, trying to bring peace in the nation, not division. He's a different kind of leader, isn't he? Look at what it says um, he does. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, Oh, may you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you, because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and, and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. David commends these guys for taking such good care of Saul's body. He says, I'm praying for you that God would show love and faithfulness to you. And by the way, you need to know that I am going to be good to you. And I'm not your enemy. I'm going to show you love and care. And then he says at the end of this little speech, by the way, Judah has anointed me king. I'm inviting you to also recognize me as king. Not forcing you to recognize me as king, just in inviting you. So we see David is a completely different kind of leader. Number one, he is seeking God's will before his own. Number two, he's not forcing himself as leader over people like Judah or Jabesh Gilead. He's only inviting them and offering to lead. And number three, so important, he is seeking peace with those people who would try and be his enemies. He's trying to bring unity in the nation. Be interesting if we saw a lot of that today, wouldn't it? In our own nation where people of different persuasions are trying to seek peace and not division? I told you, David's a different kind of leader. Now, the way the Bible sometimes teaches us is by showing us contrasts. We have a snapshot of David's heart and his leadership style. Now we're going to be introduced to a man named Abner. 
this we will see is the polar opposite of David in every single area I just mentioned to you. Abner was a selfish, egotistical leader. That's point number two. Abner, as I told you before, was the commander of Saul's army. David knew him well. Abner was actually at Saul's side when David slew Goliath. Uh, right now, David was king over one tribe. That's all. A big tribe, the tribe of Judah in the south. Abner actually was trying to reign and rule over the remaining 11 tribes in the north. Abner refused to give up power. Abner refused to give up control for the next five years. Even though he's not a king, he's ruling those 11 tribes as if he is a king. And this is what is so important for us to know. Abner is fully aware that God has chosen David to be the next king. But he refuses to let David become the king. It is intentional, hard-hearted rebellion against God because Abner's big ego is in the way. And once he has power, he's refusing to step aside. Let me show you, for instance, go back to 1 Samuel. This is uh, what Saul is speaking to David. And Abner hears all this. And now, behold, I know that you, speaking to David, shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. Abner knows that. Or you go to the next chapter we're going to cover next week. This is what Abner says. God, do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, that is to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba, which, by the way, are the northernmost and the southernmost cities of the entire land. Abner knows David is the next rightful king, but he is refusing to step aside and let David become the king. Because he's got an ego, because he's filled with pride. This means all the disaster we're about ready to read about is all coming about because of one man, Abner, who refuses to bow the knee to God's will. Let's look at this. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all of Israel. So Abner, who was ruling the northern 11 tribes, even though he's not a rightful king, takes Ishbosheth, which by the way is the one remaining son of Saul who is still alive, and installs him as king over the northern tribes, while David is king over Judah, the southern tribes. Now, interestingly, what is going on, we will see, is Abner is only doing this to try and legitimize his own authority. We'll see this very clearly next week. Ishbosheth, even though he becomes the king, is not in charge. He's a puppet. Abner is the one pulling all the strings. Now, 
why we're here, I want to teach you a little Hebrew. Now, don't freak out on this. This is fun Hebrew. This is really fun Hebrew. This Saul's son's name is Ish-bosheth. If you look in, I think it's First Chronicles, his name is called Ish-bal. Now, why are there different names given to this fourth and youngest son? His original name was Ish-bal. In Hebrew, Ish-bal means man of the Lord. He wasn't a very godly man, this fourth son. By popular, the, the word on the street had renamed him. Bosheth is shame in Hebrew. Instead of man of the Lord, the people had a name for him, the man of shame. And when you have renamed him the name of shame, that's the call of the guy's the king, you know he's a pretty bad leader. Another thing that's interesting about the Hebrew here, Abner brings Ish-bosheth to Mahanaim, and he makes him king there. Not the people recognized him. Abner made him king. Notice that. Mahanaim in Hebrew literally means two camps. You remember uh, back when we studied Genesis, we had the time where... Uh, Jacob was going back to see his brother Esau and he was afraid about his brother and he divided his possessions and things into two camps. He did that at Mahanaim and that's why it's called two camps. What Abner does is go to that city called two camps, installs a rival king to David, intentionally dividing the nation into two camps, creating civil war. He's doing this all because he refuses to step aside. The civil war in the nation is all happening because of one man, Abner, who refuses to relinquish his power and control. Now, notice how this is the exact opposite of David. David, the man who checks with God before doing anything. Abner knows exactly God's word, about who's the next to be the next king, he's doing the opposite. David didn't force himself on anyone, but let the people of Judah just recognize him as king. Not Abner. He forced Ishbosheth into the kingship. He made him king against the people's will. David, on the other hand, He's working for peace in the nation, isn't he? Remember, he sent that letter to the people of Jabesh Gilead trying to bring healing. What's Abner doing? He's creating civil war in the nation, trying to divide the nation in half because he wants to be ultimately in charge. This is the contrast we see. Now it says this, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So what this tells us is Abder reigned over the northern 11 tribes for five years. Finally, after five years, that's when he installed Ishbosheth as king to try to make his authority look more legitimate. Ishbosheth will only reign for two years, and it's going to be a bloody two 
years. Because what we find here is selfish ambition only creates chaos among God's people. What we need to understand to get this text is all the pain that's about ready to be read about. All of it comes because of Abner. Abner is the cause of all of this. And if he's not the direct cause, he's the indirect cause of all this pain in the, in the Civil War. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Bishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Uh, let's go ahead and put that map up on, on there. What was going on up in the, the northern side uh, Abner had been for the last five years fighting the Philistines, trying to kick them out since they took over the region. He's not been very successful at kicking the Philistines out. So he decides what he's going to do is then go southwest, and he's heading down to Hebron. He's going to go ahead and now fight the servants of David and kick off a civil war. This is an example of a bully in action. Remember, Abner is leading 11 tribes. David is leading how many? One. This is the big guy trying to pick on the little guy. Ultimately, I believe he's trying to get rid of David from the kingship, reunite the nation with him ultimately in charge is what he's trying to do. Now we meet the fact that they go to Gibeon and we see what happens there. Then Joab, the son of Zerui, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. Uh, Joab is David's army commander. And uh, he is the son of Zerui, which, by the way, is David's sister. Uh, he's one of three brothers, uh, Joab, Abishai, and Ashael. We'll meet them all today. And these guys, um, they're very loyal to David, but I also have to tell you, they're hawks, not doves. They are always up for a fight and killing somebody, which will sort of get them in trouble a little bit as time goes on. They meet at the great pool of Gibeon, which, by the way, is uh, next to Gibeah. It is, If you look at it historically, it is a um, pool that is carved into the bedrock. It was a water reservoir for the city. Uh, Jeremiah 41 calls it the great pool of Gibeon. So this is a very large body of water. And they sat down, the one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. This pool kept these two armies separated from one another. Except this is odd. Because they're both fellow Israelites. On the other side of the pool are people you know. In the other army are people that are your relatives. This is not the kind of fight you want to have. And Abner said to Joab, let the young man arise and compete before us. And Joab said, well, let them arise. Nobody wants to go to war with their own relatives. So Abner suggests, why don't we get a small representative group and they can fight it out and we'll just live with the outcome. It's going to be a 12 on 12 battle to represent the entire, um, all the tribes of Israel. Then they arose and passed over by number. 12 for Benjamin and Ishbotheth and the sons of Saul, and 12 for the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore that place was called um, Elkath Hazarim, 
which is at Gibeah, which by the way in Hebrew simply means the sword's edge. This didn't decide anything. Everybody dies. So the only option was to go to war, civil war. And it says, and the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now, the victory will go to Joab and to David's men, but I want you to understand, there really is no victory here. This is civil war. Everybody who's dying in this battle, it's pointless, it's purposeless, it's needless. This is brother killing brother. And why is this all happening? Because one man knows God's will about who's to be king, but he refuses to step aside and let David be king. Rather, he has the power, and he's refusing to let go of the power. That is Abner. You flip over to the next page. Here we see that conflict leads to unexpected casualties. The three sons of Zerui were there, Joab, Abishai, and Ashael. Now, Ashael was swift of foot as a wild gazelle. In other words, this guy is the sprinter. He's the track star. He's the professional athlete. And Ashael pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right nor to the left. Ashael is a young guy, but he knows that this whole civil war is because of one person. It's all because of Abner. If he can bump this big guy off, all the problems go away. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Ashael? And he answered, Oh, it is I. And Abner said to him, Well, turn aside to your right hand or to the left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Ashael would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Ashael, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How can I lift up my face to your brother Joab? I mean, if Abner kills Joab's younger brother, this civil war is going to go to a whole new level, isn't it? It's going to get really, really ugly. He knows that. He's begging with Ashel, stop pursuing him. But before you let Abner off the hook, he is the one who caused all these problems, isn't it? He is the one who invaded Judah. He is the one who started the whole idea of the civil war. This is just the result of his earlier choices that now he's being pursued by Joab's younger brother. But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back and he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Ashael had fallen and died stood still. In other words, this is going to a whole different level. Because when you're the commander of the army and the other commander has just killed your little brother, it's family business now, right? Right? Yeah, it's getting personal. It's getting really ugly at this point. Which is why the Bible says this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Try and pursue peace. Don't pursue conflict. 
when you pursue conflict, there are going to be ramifications and repercussions that are terrible and you can't see them coming until they're here, like this one. The Bible also says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Pursue peace, don't pursue conflict. Then Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. The two remaining brothers now are going after him. As the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amma, which lies before Gia, on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on top of the hill. Joab and Abishai, there is no way they can take on this large number of soldiers. So at this point, they're stuck. They can't take this guy out. And now notice this. Then Abner called to Joab, Oh, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you let your people tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? Oh, Joab, why are you continuing to chase us? What's Abner doing? Do you see it? Blame shifting. Blaming Joab for this whole mess. When whose fault is it? It's his, right? He's the one that came. He's the one that invaded. He doesn't like the fact he's caught and he's losing. And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. By the way, I just want to throw this in, in the interest of time. There is an alternate translation to that, which I think actually may be better. And this is what it is. And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, the people would have withdrawn this morning, each from following his brother. In other words, Joab says, don't you realize, don't blame me. This civil war, all this death, it's your fault. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah, and they crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Ashael. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. In other words, of David's men, there were 20 casualties, 12 from the 12 on 12 in the beginning, Ashael, and only seven more but there were 360 casualties on Abner's side. For every one person who died on Joab's side, 18 died on Abner's side. That's one of the reasons I think Abner wanted peace. Who's losing? He's losing and he's losing badly. And they took up Ashael and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night. And the day broke upon them at Hebron. Now, there are three applications I want us to take away. They're all sort of quick, but they're very important. Number one, what kind of leader am I? Am I more like Abner, or am I more like David? David, remember, uh, the one who wanted to see what the Lord's will was and follow it. Abner, the one who just followed his own will and own ways and intentionally rebelled against the Lord's will and would not let David become king. David, the one who didn't force his leadership on other people, but sought to serve them and let them make him king. Or Abner, who forced his leadership on other people and made Ishbosheth king. 
David, who was working for peace, Abner, who was working for civil war. What kind of a leader am I? A godly one or a worldly one? We need to ask ourselves that question every day. Second thing to take away is this. Whenever we pursue conflict instead of peace, there will always be unexpected casualties and regrets. Isn't that true? Abner had no idea he would end up killing Joab's own brother. And by the way, as we get further, that's going to cost him his life. He never saw it coming. Whenever we pursue um, conflict instead of peace, that's always going to be the result. Lastly is this. Resisting God's chosen king is futile and always leads to pointless suffering. Isn't that true? Abner's not going to win. God has declared David is going to be king. Resisting God's chosen king is pointless, and it only leads to suffering. But folks, that's true for us today. God's chosen king today is not David. It's the son of David. His name is Jesus Christ. All resistance to Jesus Christ as king in our life is pointless, and all it leads to is suffering. Because Jesus Christ is the one who is the rightful ruler of the earth. Jesus Christ is the one who came and he died in our place for our sin. And he is either our savior or he is our just or our judge. And resisting him doesn't make him go away because he's large and in charge of everything. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us a good and a great king, and a perfect king, a king who is far better than David ever was and better than David ever could be. Jesus, just as it was pointless for Abner and others to resist David as a king, it would only lead to suffering in their lives. May we always remember that, Jesus, you are a good king, you are a wise king, and all of our resistance to you is pointless it only leads to suffering in our lives. But embracing you as our king, following with you with our lives, is the best thing we could ever do because that is your will and plan for all of history. And all God's people said, Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.